Israel Story is brought to you by Project Kesher. Project Kesher is a nonprofit organization that empowers and invests in women. They develop Jewish women leaders and interfaith coalitions in Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, and Israel. They deliver Torahs to women who've never held one before, broadcast women's health information on Ukrainian public radio, and help Russian-speaking immigrants to Israel advocate for equal rights. Learn more at projectkeshir.org. That message you just heard? It could be you. If you too would like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, contact us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Sponsoring an episode is an amazing way of telling the entire Israel Story community folks in 194 countries around the world about your company or your brand. We've also had individuals who chose to celebrate a loved one or an organization they support by sponsoring an episode in their honor. And no less important, sponsoring our episodes is a way of supporting our work and allowing us to continue to produce the content we've been bringing you for the last five seasons. So it really is a win all around. Again, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. And now, to our episode. This episode ends in a cemetery, but it starts somewhere else altogether. When Edgar Keret's first collection of short stories, Tsinorot, was published in 1992, he wasn't yet Edgar Keret, the award-winning, internationally acclaimed author and screenwriter. He was, rather, just another 24-year-old from Tel Aviv, who wrote creative, odd, and sometimes disturbing short stories. And appropriately, perhaps, when Sinorot first came out, it was basically ignored. I think it sold about 800 copies, so I think very few bookstores had my book. So, like any other young and eager author, Edgar would occasionally pop into a bookstore and check whether or not they carried Sinorot. So it was exciting for you when you would go into a bookstore and see that they had it? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I would consider it a good day, like, because I, I wouldn't take it for granted that they're supposed to have it. But as you can imagine, it's slightly embarrassing to look for your own book. So Edgar came up with what he thought was a fail-proof strategy. When the salesman would approach him and ask if he needed any help, Edgar, without missing a beat, would blurt out the name of a different Israeli author, Yoshua Knaz. Because uh, alphabetically Knaz is right, right next to Keret, and so if they show me where the Knaz book is, I can see where my book is. So they would say like, yeah, we have some Knaz books over there, and then you would like peep to see if they, uh, if they had your book? Yes, yes. All in all, this shtick worked pretty well. Until one day, in a bookstore on Basel Street in Tel Aviv, Edgar randomly ran into his boss, Eitan. And he saw me kind of looking at the shelves, and he said to me, you're looking for your book, huh? You want to see if it's in the store? And uh, that was actually what I was doing, so, like, you know, it was kind of an awkward moment because it didn't feel too great admitting it, but it felt even worse denying it, so I said yes. Reluctantly, Edgar filled him in on his ingenious Knaz method. And we were standing in such a way that uh, he was facing the street and I was kind of 
I was looking at the cashier, you know? And then he started uh, shouting, Yoshua, Yoshua. And uh, I said, yes, yes, Yoshua Knaz. What did you think when he was yelling, Yoshua, Yoshua? I thought that's strange because, you know, like, I mean, usually like when I say, you know, Marcel Proust, people don't go shouting Marcel, Marcel, you know? Edgar didn't really understand what the hell was going on. But as he contemplated his boss's bizarre reaction, a short, middle-aged man walked into the store. Eitan, the boss, called him over and introduced them. Edgar, he said with a bit of a smirk, meet Yoshua. Yoshua Knaz. And he said to him, Yoshua, you know, Edgar just told me that whenever he wants to see if his book is in the store, he asks if they have your books. And I've realized that uh, I'm meeting for the first time Yoshua Knaz, who... Oh, you had never met him before? No, I've never met him before, and, and he's a writer whom I really admired. So if I would ever imagine us meeting, it would be kind of in this literary dinner or, I don't know, festival event and not in a bookstore. Somebody introduces me as a guy who pretends to look for his book whenever he wants to see if his book is in the store. So I just kind of looked at him, you know, a little bit like a deer caught in the headlight. But Yoshua uh, Knaz just looked at me and smiled and said, oh, whenever I look for my book, I ask them if they have uh, any Yoram Kanyuk books. Edgar laughed nervously. Yes, I've laughed, you know, and there are many kinds of, of laughter. And I think this was kind of a laughter of say, oh, okay, things are okay, you know. Things would ultimately turn out to be more than okay for Edgar. Two years later, he published his second collection, Missing Kissinger. And when that book came out, people all over the country started to discover Edgar and made him into a household name. Now, my older brother Oren must have been one of the few who did buy Edgar's first book. I remember it well. It had a pinkish cover, and Oren, who kept it on the nightstand next to his bed, seemed to be reading it constantly. And like more or less everything my big brother did at the time, that immediately categorized the book, at least in my eyes, as something very cool. So one day, when Oren was away in the army, I secretly borrowed it. The very first Edgar Kirit words I ever read were in a short paragraph printed on the back cover. And as it turns out, they were written under quite dramatic circumstances. See, when Sinorot was almost ready to go to print, Edgar told me. The publishing house sent me a back cover text that I really didn't like. And I kept nagging them that I want to have a different back cover text. And at some stage they say, okay, you know what, you can publish whatever you want, but it just has to be very, very short. Edgar thought about it, tried out a few different things, and was never quite satisfied. I didn't know what to write, but at the same time it was Hanukkah and I built a menorah. It was made out of plastic toys and when I lit the menorah, then it caught fire and it started burning and the table also kind of caught fire. So there was this mini fire in my apartment and I was able to manage it and to put that fire off, but I inhaled a lot of smoke, so I found myself in an ER. The doctor in the ER, he remembers, looked suspiciously... Like uh, George Clooney. Like he was very, very kind of handsome. He had this kind of Israeli pilot, uh, silvery hair and blue eyes. He came up to Edgar and said, So son, tell me what's wrong. And I said to him, 
Hi Pete, Menor, Menado, plastic, and and he put a hand on my shoulder and he said, "Son, you don't have to tell me everything. Just tell me the important stuff." And I said to him, "I can't breathe." And he smiled and he said, "You see, that was easy." The Israeli George Clooney treated him and went off to charm other patients. And it was then and there, on the prescription pad the doctor accidentally left behind, that Edgar wrote the paragraph for the back cover. Here it is. Asthma attack. When you have an asthma attack, you can't breathe. When you can't breathe, you can hardly talk. To make a sentence, all you get is the air in your lungs, which isn't much. Three to six words, if that. You learn the value of words. You rummage through the jumble in your head, choose the crucial ones, and those cost you too. Let healthy people toss out whatever comes to mind the way you throw out the garbage. When an asthmatic says, I love you, and when an asthmatic says, I love you madly, there's a difference. The difference of a word. And the word is a lot. It could be stop or inhaler. It could even be ambulance. Edgar, that feeling of not being able to breathe is something that's accompanied you your whole life, right? Well, I, I was born an asthmatic, and I think that uh, when I try to look back at my childhood, I think that one of my first memories is being taken uh, to an ER because I had a, a breathing problem. It would happen, like, I think twice a month, and those uh, drives... Uh, Uh, to the hospital in in which I try to communicate first with my parents and then with the doctors and I hardly have any air and I have to kind of calculate what word I want to punctuate because you can hardly speak so you can say pain or light or mother it gives you some kind of a perspective that when you look at the communication or dialogue you see some kind of hierarchy not all the words are are worth the same some of them are crucial some of them would say that some of them you like because by using one word you can say something that is almost like a sentence you know but you don't need to spend a lot of a uh, Uh, breath on it and this kind of uh, uh, idea of an economy of speech followed me all my life always sending me back to those kind of trips to the ER and I think that you know when I write I, I write very short texts and they are very concise and it all goes back to this idea of saying to myself what is the important thing to say how can I say it in fewer words Looking at asthma, it never felt like a, a problem. It felt as if it was something that had defined me, that had made me who I am. For example, if you would say to me, would you rather not have asthma? Then of course I would say yes, but I couldn't help thinking that if I wouldn't have had asthma, I would have become a different human being. So while asthma might have shaped Edgar the author, it also posed a serious health threat once the pandemic began. In a deep sense, I'm not that afraid of dying, but I am terrified of not being able to breathe. I think that when uh, the corona had arrived for the first time, this idea of kind of having corona and uh, 
maybe like because I have a background the uh, illness that I could die it became very very concrete and very very terrifying just because of the sole fact that the way that I'll die will be that I'll stop breathing and uh, when it comes to not being able to breathe I know how it feels and it's not fun at all hey I'm Ishi Harman and this is Israel's story our episode today six feet under is the sixth and almost final stop on our Alone Together journey. You know, throughout the series we've told many stories of people dealing in different ways with COVID-19. But one thing everyone we've heard from had in common is that they have all, thankfully, survived the pandemic. Some got sick, others didn't, but they all lived to tell the tale. And that, obviously, isn't true of everyone Death has sadly been all around us for the last six months. So, doctor, we're talking today on the very last day of August 2020. And as of now, how many COVID-19 deaths have there been in Israel? Just above 900. That's oncologist and health management specialist Dr. Asher Salmon. I am the head of international relations of the Ministry of Health and part of the national COVID-19 team. 900-plus casualties in a population of roughly 9 million, that's about one one-hundredth of one percent. We had around 300 uh, mortality cases during the first wave and another 600 uh, from, I would say, mid-June. So, yeah, things are getting worse. As we did respond to the first wave in a very, I would say, swift and sharp way, we finished the first wave only with 300 cases, dead cases. That created the situation that people were, you know, trying to say, oh, everything is a conspiracy and nothing really had happened. And this uh, problem is not as serious as the authorities were trying to convince us. And that is uh, part of the problem now. So I usually say that we became victims of our success of the first wave. We are now uh, experiencing a massive second wave, which is much, much uh, broader than we did see during the first wave. Like everywhere else around the world, older people are dying at a much higher rate. More than 85% of our cases were for senior citizens uh, above the age of 70. And we did have mortality cases in every age, but we seldomly saw young people dying. And when we did have young people dying, it was usually due to a complicated situation with a patient suffering from a major chronic uh, medical problem. Underlying respiratory conditions, like Edgar's asthma, have become a major concern for many people. But despite that persistent fear, Edgar says that COVID has actually been an extremely fruitful period for him. I think this had been the best days of my life because I think that as an artist, the effort that you make is uh, to be in dialogue with the authentic. And to be authentic, basically, the first thing you need to shut off is the force of inertia. You know, usually, like, I don't know, you wake up in the morning, you have to take your kid to school, you have those free meetings, you have to go to the bank, you have to do all those kind of things. And as a writer, you try to look inside and see where I want to go, what I want to do. And this basically became the, the default in the time of Corona. For me, it kind of made everything easier. 
it's as if like you're trying to concentrate and suddenly all the noises around you stop. So for me, really, uh, writing is kind of a, a sophisticated way of crying for help, you know? If everything is stable and everything is okay, then what's the point in writing? I only write when, when I feel anxious or I feel angry or I feel helpless. And uh, this is a good time to feel any of those three things. So in the past few months, Edgar has been writing non-stop. And our first story is his latest, still unpublished, non-fiction essay. And like so many of Edgar's stories, it all happens in his mind. Act 1, Rock Solid Wife. Since the plague broke out, I've finally been able to imagine my own death. It's not that I didn't try before, but every time I lay in bed, shut my eyes and try to envision my final breath, something always went wrong. If I pictured losing control of my car on the highway, for example, drifting between lanes with my wheels locked up at 60 miles per hour while hostile drivers honked at me furiously. In the end, seconds before the crash, my car would slide onto the shoulder. And although there was a lot of drama and airbags inflating, I somehow always came out of it alive. And it wasn't just car wrecks, there was everything. Terrorist attacks. Violent skirmishes with the neighbors. An on-air heart attack in the middle of a culture show on public access television. However bad I tried to make it, in the end, I always survived. Some of the visions ended with me being interviewed, my hair rumpled on the evening news. In others, I would wake up in hospital and my son would fall on me with hugs. But all the incidents ended, despite my genuine efforts, with no casualties. And then came the coronavirus and sorted everything out. Now I can close my eyes every night when I go to bed and visualize myself being rushed to hospital with severe respiratory distress. The few exhausted doctors still remaining in the crowded ER have gone off the deep end completely. My wife politely asks a young bleary-eyed doctor to examine me, explaining that I'm high risk because I have asthma. The doctor gives her a vacant stare. He's thinking about something else. Maybe what his own death will look like when the time comes. Or a shower. I try to smile. I read somewhere that when people smile, they arouse empathy. And that's why con men smile a lot. So I put on my most charming grin. If only this child doctor would glance in my direction, he would immediately see into my humanity, and the smile on my ashen face would remind him of an uncle he loved as a child who died in a diving accident. But he doesn't. He's looking at something else. He's looking at a hairy giant with a receding hairline who's standing at the nurse's station yelling like a madman. I gathered from his bellows that he's been waiting over three hours for someone to examine his father. The older nurse at the station asks him to cool down. 
Instead of answering her, the hairy giant lights a cigarette. A short security guard with no neck rushes over and tells him to put it out. And the hairy giant says he will just as soon as a doctor sees his father and not one second sooner. My wife tries to catch the child doctor's attention, but he ignores her and marches over to the giant and his father. I can feel that no matter how hard I try, I can't take any air into my lungs. It's like pushing at a locked door. I've known this sensation since childhood. I remember every detail of the asthma attacks. But back then, there was always a tiny bit of air that did get in. I look up at my wife. She's crying, which drives me mad. My death is within spitting distance. I've already accepted that. Any minute now, I'll be gone. But what's with the tears? Why do I have to leave the wonderful life that I had like this? No sun, no blue sky, a hairy giant screaming and smoking in my face, and my beloved wife crying? Death is supposed to be like the season finale in the TV series of my life. Except that actually, since you're dead, the next season never happens. And who wants a series' very last scene to show a weeping family in a crowded, disgruntled emergency room? Alright, chill guys, chill. Gotcha. I say family even though my son isn't here. He's at home playing Fortnite. Or at least that's what he was doing when they took me to the hospital. I got him just before the RPG got him. Let's go. I asked him not to come with us because I was afraid he'd pick up something in the ER. I am a dolphin. Ten players remaining. The coronavirus era is not a good time to get sick, even if you're a kid. I'm glad he's not here to see me finished. Ah. If he were, and my wife cried, he would start crying too. Gotcha. When it comes to emotions, he's a follower. I feel really good about myself right now. I want to tell my wife something to make her happy, to distract her, something to make her stop crying. But I can't talk anymore. I'm dead. And then I can't fall asleep all night. I try to talk about it with my wife. I know that coronavirus days are not the best time to open things up, but this whole business is burning inside me like a hemorrhoid and it has to be clarified. That's it, she asks? That's what's bothering you? Not that you're dying young or that you're leaving behind a wife, a child and a rabbit. Just the fact that I'm crying? I try to explain that the coronavirus, my defective lungs, the collapse of the healthcare system, the hairy giant smoking in the ER, all these are a given. There's nothing I can do about them. But her crying is a choice. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an extremely troubling one. Okay, says my wife in her seemingly accepting voice, the one she always tries out on muzzled dogs who bark at her on the street. So what you're saying is that as part of our planning for the worst case scenario, you would like me to work on this? To come prepared so that when you die right in front of me in the emergency room, I won't cry. I nod excitedly. This is a rare moment. Most of the time she doesn't really get what I want. So if I promise you right now that no matter what happens, I won't cry and instead I'll... I don't know, I'll just give you a wink, she wonders. 
I explain that she doesn't have to wink. She can just hold my hand and be cool and collected, like those bereaved mothers who appear on TV to demand that we not give in to terrorism. You can see that it's difficult for them, that they're torn apart on the inside, but they project strength and they keep up appearances. It's much easier to leave when you know you're leaving behind you a rock-solid wife. No problem, my wife nods. If it'll make things easier for you, I'll do it. No tears. Done deal. That night, I lie awake in bed again. My wife is asleep. I can hear her regular breaths next to me. And when I close my eyes, it's all there waiting. The pain, the flickering fluorescent bulbs over my bed, the air refusing to enter my lungs. I can hear the hairy giant yelling and the older nurse trying to calm him down. I struggle to take in air, pushing the door as hard as I can, but it's locked. Hovering above me, my beautiful wife looks around for the doctor. She knows there's no chance of finding him, but she still tries. I'm running out of air and she senses it. She looks at me, and in her eyes I can see it's the end. She takes my hand and puts her face close to it. She's strong, like the moms on TV, but much more peaceful. Her green eyes say, it's a shame you're leaving, buddy, but everything will be just fine here after you're gone. I fall asleep. Edgar Kirit. Actor Ishai Golan read that story, which was translated from Hebrew by Jessica Cohen. Yochai Metal scored and sound designed the piece with music by Esther Abrami and Papa Lin. Israel Story is brought to you by La Sova. Now celebrating its 30th year, Lasova is a non-profit organization that aims to ensure basic human needs to everyone in Israel. They provide over 2,000 hot meals a day, run 21 centers for underprivileged youth, operate 10 homeless shelters and hostels, and much more. Learn about volunteering opportunities at lasova.org.il. That's L-A-S-O-V-A dot org dot I-L. And now, back to our episode. In addition to everything else, COVID has changed the way we say goodbye to loved ones. Like I'm sure many of you, I've sadly attended quite a few virtual funerals and shivas this year. And of course there's something fundamentally strange and devastating about them. I mean, so much of how we grieve is about being together physically, hugging, supporting, touching. But there's also an unexpected beauty about it. Zoom has given us the opportunity to participate in funerals around the world, many of which we wouldn't otherwise have attended. It's allowed us to create global communities that come together to say farewell. Our final story today isn't, strictly speaking, actually a story. It's an audio collage made up entirely of recorded Zoom, YouTube, and Facebook Live funerals that Yochai Meital has been collecting over the last few months. Some of the funerals are of public figures, like former Chief Rabbi Eliyahu Bakshi Doron, who died of COVID back in April. Others are funerals of private people, 
agreed to let us share these intimate and painful moments. The piece includes Jewish, Muslim, and Christian services, religious ones and secular ones, services in Hebrew and Arabic and English, and in all those languages, which this time we chose not to dub or translate, what we'll hear is raw emotion. Different people, all trying to figure out how to say goodbye from a distance. Act two, last rites. Sorry for the technical delay, but to the listener, you can all hear you, Charlie. Everyone is here. A YouTube, a YouTube, including uh, over 80 attendees. Rabbi, your mic is open. Okay. Alright. Just a moment. Okay. Okay. We will all rise wherever we are to the prayer. El Malay Rachamim. El Malay Rachamim. Shochen Bam Romi. we children appreciate that so many family and friends are able to participate in this gathering in such an extraordinary way I was really looking forward to my grandma being at my wedding. Next, uh, we'll hear from Jack. Hold on. Jack, you're, you're muted. This is a really hard moment. It is all the more so because we cannot be physically present due to this terrible pandemic which, which claimed you too. The show is now closed until the end of the show. 
Uh, will they be doing the burial for you, or they will will they allow you to put some soil in with your hands? Well, to be honest, they've all disappeared, so I think we're on our own here. Okay. And we have shovels. Can you folks see inside the grave? We're going to ask David, who's on site at the cemetery, to please begin to lower the casket. Okay, we're ready to lower? Yes, we are. It's just going to be a little bit of a lag because of the bandwidth, but we'll try to do this as much in sync as possible, the mourners. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, there is a link for Shiva, like in about an hour from now, and we can have more opportunity to comfort each other and laugh. We need some laughter. Thank you, Rabbi. 
נגיבור דורשי יחודיך כבבת שומרים ברכב קרב רחמי צדקתך תמיד גומרים עשית קדוש ברוך תתך Yochai Meital edited that piece. We still have a little Alone Together Coda episode coming your way next. And after that, in what we hope isn't merely wishful thinking on our part, we'll step away from COVID and bring you the remainder of the season full of wonderful stories we can't wait to share. Till then, we hope you catch up on all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Israel Story. And while you're at it, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so that you never miss an episode. All you have to do is go to israelstory.org newsletter. Thanks to all of you who have gone to Apple Podcasts, rated us, and written a review. If you haven't yet done so, please take a moment and help us grow our community. It might seem like a small thing, but its impact is real. Reviews make a big difference. Thanks to Aviv Beckerman, Jonathan Dekel, Adi Mor, Maya Kosover, Rabbi Lisa Malek, and the Gilron and Gilberg families. Thanks also to Kurt Hoffman, Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fag, and Joy Levitt. Yochai Meital and Joel Shupak scored and sound designed this episode, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weissblum mixed it all up. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Abby Adler, Marie Ruder, and Carly Rubin are wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back shortly after Rosh Hashanah with the final coda of Alone Together. What did your wife say? Did she want you to stay at home? She wanted to divorce me. (laughs) (laughs) So till then, stay safe and have a sweet and good new year. Shana Tova, Shalom Shalom, 
and yalla bye. Si podamos levantar la moral